Um, but this book, um, it goes by, again, the, the, it's the second book in the Bible, book of Exodus. And it's that the, the event of the Exodus is where it gets its name, when God leads his people out of their slavery in Egypt. And this, uh, you could call this really the, uh, the uh, first bell of the boxing match between God and Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt. This is round one that leads up to the ultimate victory of God as he leads his people out um, in, um, to Mount Sinai and brings them to himself. Um, we are going to be going through Exodus 15 um, over the next uh, month and a half or so before taking a break and then resuming Exodus next year. But this passage is where we see God, who has so long been working in the background and so long in apparent silence, finally pull back the curtain and unveil his power no longer cloaked, finally go to war with Egypt itself, really with Pharaoh and with the so-called gods that they worshipped. A king who had abused his people for far too long. And God finally is going to show him once and for all who really is in charge. I love these events, but you, I think you're going to find them quite gruesome the more that we look in them today. So um, they are some of the greatest and most disturbing events in the entire Bible. And unlike raising the dead or healing the blind, these represent some of the only destructive miracles in the Bible. Miracles that, instead of working restoration and life, work the opposite, destruction and death. Again, at the Lord's hand, it's remarkable how well-known these plagues are known in popular culture today. Over the next three weeks, we're going to consider these ten that were poured out on Egypt. And, they, uh, and as we're going to find very shortly, they take place in three rounds of three. Uh, plagues 1 through 3, plagues 4 through 6, 7 through 9, and then all of this culminates in the final plague, the worst of them all, that finally breaks the will of Pharaoh. Before we get to that, this week we are going to just consider, and just, I mean it's still two chapters in length, the first six of these miracles, or the first two rounds of the plague. And as awesome and as terrifying as the events themselves are, I want us to consider more importantly what the plagues reveal, not just about the power and provision of God, but what the plagues reveal about the other so-called gods, if you will, that you and I tend to hope in. Today I'm going to split our passage into three parts. First, holy war. Second, the God who wages it. And third, the God who wins it. Are you ready? I hope you keep your Bibles open with me. Now, we, when we were last in Exodus, if you were with us a couple weeks ago, if you, if you weren't, that's okay. I want to encourage you to join us in reading through Exodus during the week before we show up for the sermon this morning. You'll get way more out of it next week if you're familiar with some of the passages. Now, we again, we found Moses and Aaron before Pharaoh last time making a request at God's instruction, a request that Pharaoh is going to grow very sick of by the end of this. Let my people go. Only when he first announces it, things get much 
worse for the Israelites. Instead of freedom, Pharaoh lays up an, an even more impressive burden on this people, mocking the strength of this God. And the Hebrew slaves' lives get even more complicated. Because this Pharaoh is unimpressed by this God or anything at this point he might threaten, even when Moses demonstrates a sign, as he tells him to do, and as Larry so excellently preached two weeks ago, turning his staff into a slithering serpent on the ground. Just like God's prom God promised, Moses, I mean, sorry, Pharaoh, when he sees this, his heart only grows harder, not softer. We're going to consider that hardening of Pharaoh's heart even more so next week when we consider plagues 7, 8, and 9. But why shouldn't his heart grow hard, to be honest, at least at this point? You see, Pharaoh and his, heart, his people have a lot to lose if they were to free the Hebrews, as Moses asks. And nothing about this God, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, would seem to stack up against the almighty might of Egypt, against its Pharaoh, let alone against their gods. Egypt was, in their own estimation, and in the estimation of most of their enemies, untouchable. All of that changes, though, starting in our passage today. Beginning in chapter 7, verse 14, as Moses once again stands before Pharaoh. This time, though, not in his courtroom, but on the banks of the Nile, as Pharaoh, it would seem, gets ready for his morning bath to take a dip. Well, why here, of all places, does Moses choose to confront him? It's a little bit awkward, to be honest. One of the things we need to know is that the Nile, the Nile River, even as it is an impressive geolo geological feature even today, something you can see in space, the Nile River meant everything to Egypt. It's no exaggeration to say that the Nile was the center of Egyptian life, the reason for Egyptian wealth, not simply because the fishing was good or because it provided water for their crops but because it did so year after year after year after year, predictably, ebbing and flowing with reliable consistency. That's why it became the very backbone of this nation. At a time when drought and famine could decimate a nation's power, the Nile never changed. The Nile always provided. It's no wonder that the Egyptians actually worshipped the Nile, and perhaps some of the Hebrews did as well. In fact, no less than three Egyptian gods were said to draw their strength from the Nile. Kenum, the guardian of the river's source. Hapi, the spirit of the Nile. And Osiris, whose bloodstream was said to course through its waters. The Nile was life. It was wealth. It was prosperity. And it ensured that life, wealth, and prosperity would continue generation after generation after generation. And yet, for the Hebrews, their opinion of the Nile would have been much different. It would have brought to mind much different emotions, I would think. In fact, I wonder, as Moses stands there, if two images come to his mind. First, the image of all those Hebrew boys long since drowned in the rushing waters at Pharaoh's own decree. 
And second, how nearly he had almost met with death there himself. He was only found and saved as he lay helpless and screaming as an infant boy laid in a waterproof basket in the at rest in the rushes. Here at the Nile, you could have no more perfect place for a showdown between God and Egypt to go down. Here at the Nile, a symbol of Egyptian might and Israel's sorrows. Something here, other than Hebrew blood, would now run. The whole thing is actually quite horrible, to be honest. It's fair as Moses plunges the same staff that turned into a serpent into its waters and immediately sees the waters turn red, turn to blood. Who knows if Pharaoh and his servants were already in the water at the time? Do you think they scrambled to get out? Panic-stricken, horrified to now be dripping with blood themselves unable to wash themselves clean, watching at that Nile River as countless fish began to float belly up to the surface. It's an image of death. I remember how freaked out we were as a family when we came home to find our pet guppy belly up on the surface of his bowl. Can you imagine here at the Nile River, can you imagine the smell? The smell of death covering the land. And if to, as, to as if to prove that this wasn't just some natural phenomenon, the blood didn't just stay in the Nile, but everything that ha was connected to or had been drawn from the Nile turned to blood in an instant. Blood in every stream and pool, blood in every cup, bowl, and basin. How long do you think it took them to discover that their only source of clean drinking water would now be found by digging into the dirt on the river's edge, as it tells us in verse 24? And somehow, remarkably, Pharaoh remains unflinching in all of this. Verse 22 tells us Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Verse 23, Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not even take this to heart. What a picture. Seven days pass before it would seem God relents, and Moses and Aaron stood once again before Pharaoh, again crying to him, Thus says the Lord, let my people go. This time, threatening the king, not with blood, but of all things, with frogs. If this doesn't seem worse to you than a plague of blood, it probably is because you haven't thought about it very much. You see, while for that week they may have gone a little thirsty or they had to plug their nose every time they passed by the Nile waters, generally speaking, it was a plague that was temporary and could be avoided especially if you were as rich and prosperous as Pharaoh. After all, he didn't go searching for his own water, did he? That was someone else's job. But this plague, no one could, do, could avoid. It tells us the amount of slimy, squirming, chirping, and burping frogs was so great that they swarmed the land like insects. Imagine frogs 
squatting in your food, wiggling their, wee- their way into the sheets of your bed, following you into the toilet, crawling across your face in the middle of the night. Imagine squishing frogs every time you sat down, every time you weren't watching your step, every time you rolled over in your sleep. Gross isn't strong enough of a word for it. It's no wonder that Pharaoh pleads Moses to take them away in a way he did not with the blood, which God does not by sending them back where they came from, back into the Nile River, but by the frogs dying or croaking. Sorry, I couldn't help it. Right where they were. Some of you just got that. Uh, So that they had to be gathered together in heaps. And verse 14 tells us, as the decaying frogs were in these heaps, the whole land once again smelled like death. Ugh. Yet once again, chapter 8, verse 15 tells us, when Pharaoh saw there was a respite, he hardened his heart again and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. And so the pattern persists. Moses warns, Pharaoh refuses, a plague comes, Pharaoh hardens, and the plagues continue even as they get worse. Even as... Third, swarming gnats come next, or what is more likely to have been, well, really any variety of small, biting insects. Perhaps this was a plague, not of gnats, but of mosquitoes or lice. Seriously, can you imagine a plague of mosquitoes? Some of you are thinking, welcome to a Midwest summer. Which is followed by even bigger insects, some kind of swarming, biting flies, buzzing and stinging people and animals for days upon days at a time. Anyone else get like the heebie-jeebies in picturing any of this? And it only gets worse. It doesn't just become uncomfortable, painfully uncomfortable and awkward. But now the plagues go to their property as their livestock. Their cattle, sheep, horses, camels, goats are struck dead and left to rot in the fields under the hot sun. And then, if that wasn't enough, chapter 9 tells us, one day they wake up covered in painful, oozing boils so miserable and so disfiguring that the magicians who had once so proudly boasted their might and the might of their gods, their ability to reproduce anything that this Yahweh could throw at them, now are themselves cowering in fear and pain, leaving Pharaoh to face Yahweh's servant alone, saying, don't you see this must be the finger of their God? A river of blood infesting frogs swarming gnats, biting flies, rotting livestock, and festering boils. Six plagues, and just the first two rounds of a holy war. We have to wonder when Moses thinks all of this will relent. At this point, we have to wonder, too, is anything going to soften this king? You're going to have to wait till next week as we discuss that, but Now that we have the general play-by-play of the war itself, we need to consider, more importantly, what it reveals about the God who wages it. Number two, the God who wages it. Now, as a parent of four, 
I sometimes wonder whose stubbornness is going to hold out longer. Mine and my wife's or our kids. But none of us have seen anything like this. I don't think, uh, again, any of us have seen stubbornness quite like Pharaoh. We expect at some point that Pharaoh would throw his hands up after all of this takes place. There's a one point at least where he seems to, at least two points, where he says, okay, okay, if you just give it up, if you just relent, if we can just work out a compromise, then I'll let your people go. We're going to consider this more next week. But no, it turns out at the end of these six plagues, despite his promises and attempts at comp- compromise, the king is only more hardened than before. So hardened that nine twelve. Chapter 9, verse 12 tells us it's by the very hand of God. This is a supernatural opposition. Verse 12, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh as he did not listen to them, as the Lord had spoken to Moses. I don't know about you, but this gets to a very basic question. What in the world is the Lord up to? It makes sense for us to have a Pharaoh who hardens his own heart. But of a God who is hardening it, who is keeping the plagues going, intensifying them as if he had a purpose underneath. Why? What is God hoping to accomplish? I mean, this might be entertaining for us to read about or picture in our mind's eye as we sit here in our own clean clothes in an air-conditioned auditorium that's hopefully pest-free. But not so much for the Egyptians. The whole thing would have been horrible, horrifying, and painful. You might even wondering, be wondering in this, so much for a God of loving mercy, where is that God now? Isn't he partially to blame for allowing this to go on so long? What could God be up to? I think to understand this, we need to see an idea that shows up again and again in these chapters, including the passage that Larry preached on just two weeks ago. I want you to turn back to chapter 7, if you would. And read with me verses 3 through 5. So just turn back a few pages or click on your phone or your iPad back a few chapters where God explains in chapter 7, verses 3 and 5, he explains his purpose in all of these things. That God was not surprised by the hardness of Pharaoh, about how far this would go his purpose for all that is about to be poured out upon Egypt. Verse 3, But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Do you see that? And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. That sounds like what we just read. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out my, the people of Israel from among them. If we can keep that last verse on the screen for a second. I want you to notice here. According to God himself, what is his purpose for the signs and wonders? For the great acts of judgment? even for the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. You can find it right here in verse 5. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. 
This idea shows up, up all over the Bible, but particularly in the next few chapters of Exodus. I'm going to give you a sampling of them, and these are going to go very quickly. Exodus chapter 7, verse 17, if you would put that up there. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Chapter 8, verse 10. Tomorrow, Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know there is no one like the Lord our God. Chapter 8, verse 22. So, uh, where I, on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen, jumping ahead, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of of the earth chapter 9 verse 29 so that you may know that the earth is the lord's chapter 14 verse 4 the egyptians shall know that i am the lord and chapter 14 verse 18 the egyptians shall know that i am the lord do we get the point in other words god doesn't just have purposes for the israelites in the exodus he doesn't just have purposes in freeing the Israelites from their bondage. He has purposes for the Egyptians, even for Pharaoh. What exactly? That they might know and recognize that the Lord is God and there is no one like him. I have to tell you, this simply will not make sense to you if your vision of God is a tribal or small one. If your concept of God is one who is largely removed from our day-to-day, -day, who leaves us on our own to, see, to seek our happiness as we see fit, if your concept of God is that he only concerns himself with those who like him, the God of the Bible, though, doesn't just claim to be the God of some. Even the God of the interested, no, the God of the Bible, claims to be the God the only God, maker of heaven and earth, to whom every creature which he made owes them their loyalty. After all, according to the Bible, every single breath that has been filling your lungs without you even thinking about it this morning, think about it. Breathing in, breathing out, where does that come from? It comes from the Lord our God. And it has been given to you for one purpose, to declare his praise. Whether or not you recognize God as your God does not change the fact that he demands your allegiance and he deserves it. It does not change the fact that you were made for his glory, a glory he is after and he will achieve. Friends, it's important to say that the Bible orbits around a central assumption that you and I are not the center of this story. God is. And the good news of the Bible sees not just human beings reconciled and redeemed to him, but that God once more would be revered as God forever. That is God's purposes for the entire created order, for every living thing to unite all creatures in the praise of himself. God is a God who is after his glory. If that sounds new to you, I encourage you to watch for it as you read your Bible. You, you cannot miss it at every turn. Why is it that he saves? Why is it that he judges? 
Why is it that he creates? Why is it that he destroys? His glory is the reason that he gives mercy and withholds the same. God is after his own glory, and there is coming a day when the knowledge of God, that he alone is God and deserves the worship of all things, there is coming a day when that knowledge of him will cover the earth like the waters cover the seas. God puts it this way in Isaiah 43. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. I think I have the wrong passage up there. For I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, and from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. That is the purpose for which every creature, including you and me, have been made. And believe it or not, it is actually in resting in that purpose that you will find your deepest meaning and dignity. Let me say again, that purpose remains. Whether or not you believe it to be true, God will be God, whether or not we recognize him as God right now. But it is in waking up to that that fact, to seeing that there is a purpose for your life. It is a meaning that has been written into your life from the very beginning by God himself to know and love and obey him. And recognizing that fact is how you find your joy. The problem is, even though we are made to have God sit upon the throne of our hearts, There is usually something that is sitting there already. Something that we already worship, often without thinking about it. And I'm not the only one who thinks so. According to David Foster Wallace, who who is a professed atheist, he once put it this way, again, from someone who, again, does not believe in the existence of God. Notice what he had to say. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everyone worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. That is a very biblical concept from someone who does not submit to the authority of the Bible. Everyone worships. The only choice we get is what? What does he mean? After all, we live in a time where so many are able to make sense of their lives apart from God. And to be honest, many of us do here. This won't make sense to you, again, if you think of worship primarily in terms of a set of religious behaviors. But what if we thought of worship more in terms of love. Let me ask you, what is it you love most? What do you live your life pursuing, chasing after? What is it you really want and expect to get out of life? What would really make you happy? That is how the Bible conceives of worship, the answer to those questions. 
Worship is the organization of our lives around what we love and value the most. The organization of our lives around what we love and value the most. The thing is, all of us have something like that. Something so important to us that we organize our lives and our daydreams around it. Something that we fight to protect and can't imagine our lives without. And so often, it can be a good thing. It could be your kids. It could be your career. It could be what you look like. What others think of you. It could be how much money you have or what, or the money that you want to have. It could be a relationship you have or want to have. Or the simple desire to have a life that is predictable and free of pain. All of us have something that is ultimate to us and is James K.A. Smith says, you are what you love, and you may not love what you think. Have trouble diagnosing what that might be in your life? Let me ask, where does your time, where does your money and your mental energy go the most easily? What do you daydream about? What is the first thing that you want others to notice or know about you? What if you lost, what, what is the one thing that if you lost it would make you seriously question whether or not you would ever be okay? The desire for power, for comfort, for control, for approval can rule us. It, you could say it can be a God to us. And often the only thing that reveals the hold that something like that has on us let alone the worship that is already being demanded from us by that so-called God, the only thing that often reveals it is when that God is threatened. I think we see this in the plagues themselves. After all, these plagues weren't simply designed to break the will of Pharaoh. After, after all, why would God insist on hardening Pharaoh's heart? I mean, he could have ended this theoretically a lot sooner. No, in many ways, I think the plagues were designed to challenge and humiliate the so-called gods of Egypt. In fact, later in Exodus chapter 12, verse 12, God tells us as much, referring to the final plague that he would bring. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And notice this phrase, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Who is it that God says he will judge here? Is it Pharaoh? The Egyptians? No, he says he will execute judgments on their gods. Now, does this mean that there are other gods other than God himself? Not at all. The Bible is very clear that God is the only God. But that doesn't mean that these so-called gods were any less real to the Egyptians' minds. Any less real than the gods, quote-unquote, that we spend our lives worshiping either. After all, the, our false gods, just like the Egyptians' gods, promise great things. They promise prosperity, security, comfort to us. And so often they can mimic, in a sense, God's power and provision, at least in some ways, just like the magicians imitated the first few plagues. After all, 
Why would we keep running back to these gods? These idols, the Bible will use the term for, if they didn't at least offer a taste of what we long to have. And even when they don't, some, uh, some part of us still wants to believe they can. Because if they can, if these gods actually can provide what my heart longs for, that means I don't actually have to listen to what God says. I don't have to submit to what he says. I can actually go around God to be happy. And even the smallest appearance, then, in our gods, that the gods can actually satisfy us, these other idols, whether it be, again, approval or family or work or your reputation, these things that we live for, if it's true that they, at least in the smallest, smallest measure, might actually provide for us, we will find ourselves hardening our hearts just like Pharaoh toward anything the Lord might say. The thing is, in doing so, in hardening our hearts too, and in insisting on worshiping something created rather than the creator, we not only forsake the true source and path to lasting happiness, we dishonor the living God, the only God who is there. Our false gods, no matter what they claim, cannot come through on their promises, not ultimately. And in doing so, in insisting on worshiping them, we not only are going to gods that cannot deliver, we have staged a coup against the king of the universe. And do we really think that he is going to take this lightly? This doesn't just have personal implications, it has society-wide ones. After all, why is it that so many of us struggle worshiping the same idols? But because it is possible for entire societies to unite behind the worship of God, so much it becomes the basic assumption of how we live. That it's assumed we will live for money. It's assumed that we will live for success. It's assumed that we will live for our personal autonomy. It's assumed that we have the right to do and say whatever we want or to do to our bodies or with our bodies whatever we want. It is possible that an entire culture can unite itself around false worship, even our own. It's no wonder that it's difficult for us to see it, see what we actually worship, especially when it's just commonly assumed. And when giving up the worship of it, might not just make you look strange, but might meet with outright opposition. Friends, the thing is, if it's true that our false gods cannot satisfy, and yet we remain stubbornly committed to them, we need God to wage war. We need God to wage war against our so-called other gods. We need God to if we are ever going to cling to him in faith, if we are ever going to know that there is no one like the Lord our God, we need God to take direct action against our idols. For his power to match our stubbornness and for our false gods to fall. Let me put this differently. I realize that many of us have spent most of our lives trying to avoid suffering, loss, and change. I mean, who wants in here to be uncomfortable? But friends, have you considered that this might be the very thing that you need most? That it might be all part of the process 
that your suffering might be all part of the process of God loosening your grip on the things that you have hoped in to save you, that you might tighten your grip on him. Have you thought that suffering and loss and failure might be the only thing, in fact, that finally causes you to see that God is the Lord and there is no one like him? Do you believe that, again, if you are to know that he is the Lord, do you believe that 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 is what God wants most for you? Do you believe that God doesn't just want your comfort He doesn't just want your success. He doesn't just want what the rest of the culture tells you to live for. He wants something better, something purer, something that's actually satisfied, devoted, full-hearted allegiance to him and him alone. That kind of faith sometimes only comes by seeing the failure of our false gods firsthand. Friend, have you spent your life resenting God for what he has taken from you? not realizing that he desires to give you something even better. But this leads us finally to number three, the God who wins. There's still one aspect we have not considered in all of this, so there's plenty actually. That is, uh, though, the one thing I want to talk about is that the Egyptians, in all of this, as they watched and experienced all of these horrors from the inside, they are also watching something else. They are watching Israel, their slaves, spared from all of it. Did you notice that? Starting in the fourth plague, I think, and with all of the plagues that precede it, I I think is assumed, God makes a clear distinction between his people and their enemies. In fact, in the plague against the livestock, where all the livestock are killed, or most of them, I should say, there's still some left alive later on, Pharaoh launches an investigation into whether the rumors that he's heard, that that Israel has experienced none of this, he launches an investigation to see if that's true, or if maybe this is just a really bad year for everybody. And what did he find? That the people and possessions of Israel, God's people, had been passed by. What's the point in all of this? What is being proven? Well, What was it, again, that saved this nation of slaves? Why is it that they were spared? Was it their strategic planning that they simply outfought their enemies? Was it their impressive credentials? Did they simply outperform their enemies? Was it their track record of obedience? It wasn't, friends. It wasn't being stronger or smarter or more well-connected than Egypt. It was simply the fact that they were sheltered under the right God. At this point, without even realizing it, even before Israel demonstrated faith in this God, they were learning what it was like to be under his care. That unlike the gods of Egypt, this God's power knew no rival. Unlike the gods of Egypt, this God's purpose would be uncompromised. And unlike the gods of Egypt, his provision had no lack. This was a God of rich things, of good gifts, and only desired to give joy and satisfaction to his people forever and anyone else who would rest under his care. In other words, even as God's purpose was to humiliate the so-called gods of Egypt and all who hoped in them, even more so, God's purpose was for his glory and his goodness to stand out in the contrast. 
In fact, you could say that in the midst of all the plagues, there is a hidden hope that is held out to the Egyptians. And this is going to become increasingly clear in the next few plagues. That if these Egyptians would heed the warning, would watch what he is doing, and if they would remove themselves from the care of these so-called weak and underperforming gods and come under the care of the Lord, the only God who is there, that they too could experience the same rescue and salvation. This is essentially what Jesus himself points to in the New Testament when he's speaking with a Samaritan woman, a woman who came only with a resume of her own disqualifications. When Jesus says to her that the Father, the Father himself, God himself, is seeking worshipers for himself. The Father is seeking those who would worship him in spirit and truth, who would come and rest under his care and the care of no one else, regardless of what background or track record or resume they come from. And so, Jesus told the woman and the crowds around to come to him, to come under the care of a good shepherd, to find their deepest joy and dependence in the fountain of living water, to worship him as the great I am who alone can deliver on his promises, the God who is there. But instead, this one who could satisfy, who received and even will demand worship, was rejected and killed. Why? Not simply because those around Jesus refused to worship him as he deserved, but in many ways because they were already worshiping something else, even his closest followers. The teachers of the law worshiped their power and position. Pilate worshiped his own reputation. Even his disciples, disciples worshiped their own comfort and safety. In the end, Jesus threatened all of them, threatening what they could not stand to lose. And in an attempt to preserve their position, their comfort, their security, in an attempt to save themselves, they found themselves standing against God himself with only one option left, to kill him. As the threat or disappointment that they thought he was. They did what Paul describes every one of us do in Romans chapter 1. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for something else. The worship of the creator for the created. But in the mysterious purpose of God, this was actually by God's design. Why? Why would he send his own son to go to his own death upon the cross to experience the results of where false worship leads every time because he knew that only through Jesus' death and resurrection from the grave three days later, it was only through that death and resurrection that the eyes of those who rejected him would be opened. It was only through that death that our hardness might finally be lifted, that we might taste and see finally that the Lord is good, that the Lord alone is God, and we might shelter under his care forever. Friends, to remain under the care of any other God, offering 
anything or anyone else our basic loyalty or obedience is to stand under a condemnation that is even more severe than the plagues felt in Egypt, if you can believe it. After all, God is God, and he will be acknowledged as God in the end. Every tongue will confess, and every knee will bow. But again, those so-called gods can't provide anyways. They could not and will never come through on your promises, on their promises. Even in judgment, God is calling out to all of us to come under the, go- the care of a God who can run to him, flee to him, do whatever it takes to come to him, even if kicking what is ever presently on the throne of your heart feels a lot like death. The stakes could not be higher. Only God deserves to be worshipped as God. But the rest you will find, if you do, could not be richer. Before we close, I want to give you an example of one of my friends who experienced this firsthand. My friend Neil, one of my best friends in seminary. Right before his junior year in high school, Neil was at the top of his game, quite literally. He was a success on the football field and in the classroom, something I definitely never was. Handsome, smart, and talented, as well as a leader in his youth group leading a Bible study on campus. Perhaps the cherry on the top of all of this, though, is he was the owner of his dream car, a 96 Pontiac Firebird, five-speed, candy apple red. He loved his car. Then February of that year, his parents sat down with him and expressed their concern, some concerns they had. Not about his grades or his performance on his team, but of all things of an underlying arrogance and pride that they saw in their son. Can you imagine as a parent having that conversation? That even though he seemed to have a lot going on for him, even though he seemed to have a heart that was devoted to God, under the surface, what he worshipped was actually himself. Of course, as you can probably expect, he didn't take this very well. After all, what kind of high schooler wants to hear this from their parents? Still, the more he thought about it, the more convicted he actually got over the next month, beginning to see the depths, at least the beginning of it, of what his parents saw, and also was so overwhelmed by the fact that he, he saw that he could not uproot it on his own, and he played, prayed a very dangerous prayer. He played, prayed for God to do a work that he couldn't to uproot this pride, this false worship, whatever the cost. And what happened next? Without exaggeration, God went to war against his idols. Just a month later, his dream car was taken from him, totaled in a stupid fender bender, leaving him sore, both in body and pride. But soon, the soreness, his aches grew worse turning into massive stomach pains. Pains, it turns out, were sourced in a ruptured appendix, spewing poison throughout his body and had been. Rushed into immediate surgery, the doctors cleaned up as much as they could, but as is so often happens with a ruptured appendix, poison lingered in Neil's body. Ebola and sepsis set in. Over a month, interspersed by three surgeries, two hospitals, Neil brushed death more than once. His whole life was upended. 
this once healthy, self-assured, toned and popular young man now was sickly green and purple, a weak and broken young man, 35 pounds lighter in body and even more shrunken in confidence. Neil had been robbed, robbed of his health, his grades, his confidence. Eventually he would get out of that hospital, but this student who was one at, at the top of his class who now had to take summer school, once the hero on the field, now he struggled to simply walk down the stairs. Once the friend of many, now he was very much alone. And yet my friend will tell you today, this is the greatest gift you could have ever asked for. Why? Because in devastating his idols, God freed him. Not simply from his stubborn pride, but because in the midst of all of this, he finally found in Jesus what he could have never found anywhere else. Friends, let me ask you, would you be willing to pray that same prayer before your God? God, would you do war with my idols, even if I can't see them? Would you seize back, seize me back from whatever I have exchanged your glory for? Whatever it takes, would you cause my heart to finally shelter under you? There's perhaps no more terrifying a prayer to pray, especially if God might answer it. And yet, friends, there is only one God who deserves glory from you. Only one God who is actually there and only one God who will stand in the end. Who we will see face to face and any lost will be restored because we will have him. And we will have him forever. Father, we come to you as those who love so many things. And we, we don't love often what we expect. We were created to love you and you supremely. And we know we cannot love you supremely unless you would go to war against the things that already rule us and hold us as their slave. Some part of us does not want to give them up. And yet if there's any piece of us, if we hear the Spirit crying out, freedom for us, Lord, would we pray the very dangerous prayer in this room that you would be treated and seen as God by us, whatever the cost. Lord, would you form in a here a church, a counterculture that loves and worships God and does not surrender to whatever is commonly assumed, that will not worship at the altar of another, no matter how many people do. And Lord, would the worship of this God be so compelling that we might call others to shelter under the God who is there, that we might stand out as a city on a hill, light in dark places, and Lord, we pray all these things through the matchless name of Jesus Christ, who will be seen as king and before whom all will bow.